I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of John, to the book of John. We've been studying through the book of John, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and uh, we come now to the book of John, chapter 12, and what is often called the triumphal entry. Traditionally, it is celebrated on Palm Sunday, and we come into the last week of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Context of this passage is immediately after Mary has anointed Christ with a very expensive perfume in honor and love of the Savior. We come to John chapter 12 and we begin reading at verse 12. Scriptures read, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him When he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among them, who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's bow before the Lord in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word, that, Father, you would fill us with your spirit and illumine our minds Grant to us understanding. May your word be divided correctly for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Back in 1979, I remember as a little boy, I was 10 years old, and our family enjoyed basketball. We were watching the Seattle Supersonics, and we were watching on this big black and white vacuum tube TV. We cheered our team on. You remember the team, perhaps, Jack Sigma, Gus Williams, Freddie Brown, and John Johnson, and the coach, Lenny Wilkins. I remember as a little boy during the playoffs, and during the tenth time when the game was close, so I'd run back into my bedroom during a timeout and kneel by my bed and pray that they would win. <laughs> we won. We won the NBA championship, and, you know, they would have that song playing over and over, we are the champions of the world, and everyone was so very excited. I'd like to think it was because of my little prayers, but I think God had already had it all planned out. Fast forward to 2014. Just a month ago, when the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl, it was the first time since 1979 that our city had such a celebrated championship like that. King 5 reports this. More than 700,000 cheering Seahawks fans crowded downtown streets, Seattle streets, on Wednesday to celebrate the franchise's first Super Bowl victory. So many people streamed into town. The parade started 40 minutes late because of the team buses had a hard time making their way to the starting point near the Space Needle. Many commuters were turned away from mass transit or were forced to wait in long lines to get on trains, buses, and ferries. The Bainbridge Island Ferry was reporting a one-boat wait even for foot passengers, which is extremely rare. Seattle Public Schools reported 565 teachers absent out of nearly 3,000 teachers total. They said on average, there are between 270 to 400 teachers out per day. A total of 13,523 students reported absent out of the 51,000 students enrolled in the district. For comparison to the 13,000 some odd, there were 2,770 students absent on Tuesday, the day before. It's a day that they'll remember for the rest of their life, just as I remember as a little boy. And that perhaps was somewhat similar to what it was like when people went to welcome Jesus as he came into the city of Jerusalem because this was the Passover. There were millions of people, estimated two and a half million and up, based upon the number of sacrifices that were given. Jerusalem was packed for the Passover. There were millions of people there to celebrate. There was an air of excitement, of hope, of expectancy, anticipation. As we saw in the passage prior to this, people were talking. Is Jesus going to come? Where is he and what is he going to do? Even the Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, were wondering, if anybody sees him, report him to us. People came out, children, onlookers. You can imagine them saying through the crowd, can you see him? Has he passed yet? Where is he? When is he going to come? Is he going to come at all? But likely, out of those thousands of people, not all were there because they loved the Lord. In fact, many in the crowd within a week would turn against our Lord Jesus and cry out, crucify him. 
So we pick up the count here in verse 12 of chapter 12. As Jesus comes on the next day, it says, the day after Mary anointed him with perfume, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches here. That day, celebrated traditionally as Palm Sunday on our calendar, occurred after his anointing. And there was a crowd, the crowd that had heard about Jesus there, heard about Lazarus. And you remember they were in Bethany and they were having a, a meal. <coughs> and a crowd had heard and they came because they wanted to see Lazarus. They heard that he had been raised from the dead. And after that night, Jesus came. He came southward, going from Galilee and going through Jericho. And he gave sight to a blind man, and he was coming over the Mount of Olives. And all along the way, upon this journey to the Passover feast in Jerusalem, there were people who began to flock to him. There's probably a significant entourage of curiosity fans that were accompanying Jesus. And the city was already all abuzz about Jesus with people talking about him in addition to being there to celebrate the Passover. It was jam-packed and oftentimes they would have very little room for people to stay. But here, people had an air of expectancy, hope for the future because there had been no one like the Lord Jesus who had ever walked the face of the earth. And so when word got out that Jesus was coming towards Jerusalem, the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew and of Mark, tell us that there was a large crowd that streamed out of the city in order to meet Jesus, who was on his way coming over the Mount of Olives with his own entourage of people. And this confluence of crowds welcomed Jesus. The flowing streams of people would come great hopes, great anticipation with electricity in the air, well-wishers had come. The fevered pitch of the popularity of Jesus was eclipsing and they took branches, the text says, they took branches of the palm trees which were plentiful in the area. Palm branches are not associated with the Passover. Traditionally, they're associated more with the Feast of Tabernacles six months earlier. As you may recall, when we looked at that particular passage, the Feast of Tabernacles, six months earlier, there was a festival that was the Feast of Tabernacles in which they would take these palm branches and they would go up to the temple and the Pharisees would direct them to hold the palm branches in a great round roof over the altar. And you remember the priest would go out the water gate and go to the Pool of Siloam and he would take a cup a pitcher, a golden pitcher that held two pints of water, scoop some water out, come and pour it at the altar, and people would be taking these palm branches in a celebration, in a celebration, singing. Levites would surround the area singing the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. The palm branches were symbolic of celebration, of victory, of joy. When Simon Maccabeus, during the Maccabean Revolt, some 175 years earlier, when he had gotten rid of the domination of Rome under Antiochus Epiphanes, he came into the city with, quote, praise and palm branches, unquote. 
And perhaps that was in the mind of the people. For they remembered when Simon Maccabeus had been able to recapture the temple in Jerusalem from Rome. And that was their idea of the Lord Jesus, you recall? Their idea of a Messiah, their idea of a deliverer, their idea of one who would come as the Savior would be that of a military ruler, of one who would come to overthrow Rome and to establish a kingdom here on earth. They were out in force. They were out in force like the twelfth man to go out and welcome the hope of Israel with palm branches. Mark 11 verse 8 tells us, And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Putting your coat on the road as Jesus would come was a sign of homage. It was a sign of homage to one who was royalty. And the people were cheering. And what were they saying? They were saying, as it says here in the text, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna was a transliteration of the Hebrew word simply meaning help, I pray, or save, I pray, save me, or save now, I pray. And Psalm 118, part of that Hillel would be called the Conqueror's Psalm. The Conqueror's Psalm, one that is sung by the temple choir every morning during major festivals. So what were they saying? This was a declaration of, of praise, of acclamation, along with the messianic title, King of Israel. And so as Jesus is coming to the city, here they sang, Save now, I pray, King of Israel, who comes in the name of God. Save us now, I pray, King of Israel, in the name of God. As Jesus came into Jerusalem with thousands of people that likely lined his way, came riding on a young donkey, verse 14. He sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. On his way into Jerusalem, he dispatches two of his disciples to a little hamlet or a little village along the way to retrieve a colt, the colt of a donkey, and they did so. Now some have a difficulty because Matthew 21, 2-7 says that there is a donkey and a colt. Whereas Mark and Luke focus on simply the colt or the young donkey that no one ever sat on. There's no contradiction. Whenever you find one that mentions two and one that mentions one, you harmonize the two. It doesn't say that they're the only one. You harmonize the two. If there was one or if there were two and John only mentions one, it doesn't exclude the other. Just as if I were to say at dinner time I was talking with my mother and one would not say, well, nobody else was there when my father often just sits and eats quietly. Jesus chooses the donkey's colt. He chooses the donkey's colt, the humbler of the two animals. If he had ridden a white horse, that would signify oftentimes a military warrior who would come to make war, which is what the people wanted. The people wanted a, a coup. They had wanted a military 
individual who would overthrow Rome and perhaps in their mind's eye, this man Jesus could very well be that man. You were part of the Roman garrison that was standing there overlooking. You would probably not think that Jesus riding on the back of a young donkey would be any threat. But even more so than why he rode that was because he was fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, as it says there. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What was a part of God's plan? That Jesus would be coronated, acclaimed by the people, praised. But it wasn't like the pompous king waving to the people, throwing confetti to the people or anything of that sort. No. What was Jesus doing? You can imagine as he rode that donkey into Jerusalem and thousands of people singing, Save now, O Lord, King of Israel, the one who is sent from God. Luke 19, if you'll turn in your Bibles there, Luke 19, just a book over, tells us what happened as he rode in. Luke 19, verse 41 The scriptures tell us in Luke nineteen forty one. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you <coughs> the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children with you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Among all of the enthusiastic Praise, the energy, the excitement, the elation of the people. Jesus knew what the future held. He knew that their rejection of him, even though their vocal cords praised him, the city would be destroyed, the people slaughtered, scattered, all because they did not realize who Jesus really was. In fact, that is what the next section will point out. But you know what? There are a lot of people like that today? There are a lot of people like that today. They have their own idea of who God is, of who Jesus is. Their own idea of who God is, that he is some sort of benevolent, elderly individual, a grandfather-like person who is all loving and only loving and would never condemn anybody or who would accept anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, who would never send anybody to hell and shells out free things whenever we ask them to. That's how some people vision God. But just like these people, God desires that all would come. He wants all to be saved. He knows that they are in sin, grieves his spirit. 
What do you think of God? What do you think of God if you think of God as some divine candy machine that you only pray when you need something? It shells out eternal life insurance? Well, you put it in your back pocket, so to speak, and think that, well, if I merely profess and I say that I am and I say the right things, then I'll be okay. That's not the God of the Bible. Some of them, like the people today, just waving palm branches, just out there as a fan, not committed to Christ. Others, though, are confused. Others are confused. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. This is often characteristic of the disciples. They simply didn't understand. They didn't get the lesson. They didn't quite understand what Jesus was talking about. Oftentimes, they didn't put it all together. You recall when Jesus said to them in Matthew 16, his disciples came to him and, and he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what did they do? They looked at one another. You know what? Jesus must be talking about the fact we forgot lunch. And they began to talk. Did you bring bread? I didn't bring bread. Who brought bread? I don't know. And they began to talk among themselves. That's what verse 7 of Matthew 16 tells us, but Jesus wasn't talking about whether or not they had brought food. He was warning them against the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Often things like this would happen. In fact, in Luke eleven sixteen, they were going up knowing that there was imminent danger and they didn't quite know what was going to happen to Jesus. And they all often had some confused conception of what would happen. You remember what Thomas said. He said, well, let's all go up and we'll die with him. Sort of a surrender, nonchalant, let's all go and be killed. They recognized, even if they recognized Jesus as Messiah, they didn't know the plan. Often clueless. Suddenly all of these people who ushering them into Jerusalem, what's happening? Perhaps, perhaps this is the time things are looking up from their vantage point. After Jesus was glorified, they understood how, why. John 14 tells us, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring into your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit came, reminded them of the things Jesus taught them, helped them to understand what a blessing that is to us when we read the scriptures, that we can have understanding because of the Spirit of God. Many people had come out just to wave branches and cheer what they thought was their Messiah in their own conception. Others were confused like these disciples. And then there was the crowd, as I mentioned before. They came out. They were automatic promoters. Verse 17 tells us they came out. They heard the reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Because they had heard that he had performed the sign, just like the shows come back to town. 
The show has come back to town. You notice Jesus and his popularity would ebb and flow. He would have a massive number of people would come. They would listen to what he'd say. He would heal them. He would feed them. Thousands upon thousands of people would say, even after he fed the 5,000, which was probably more like 15,000 or more, with all of the people, that was 5,000 men. Then he would say, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to eat of my body and drink my blood. Figuratively, he say that, and like a wave that would crash on the shore and recede, the people began to leave. This crowd, too, some of these people who would say, Hosanna, save now, Lord, would later say, crucify him. Fans, not followers. False disciples, not true. They wouldn't surrender themselves. They wouldn't commit themselves. No, they were fickle. They were vacillating. They were undecided. They were wavering because they had heard, it says there, Jesus performed this miracle. Then there were those who were simply there and they were angry. They were angry. The fuming Pharisees in verse 19, they began to blame one another. And say, you see, you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Just the night before, they'd been scheming as to how to kill Jesus. Judas had agreed to betray him. They didn't want to do anything during the feast because of the massive number of people who were there. It might create a scene. They were frustrated. They were blaming one another. Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said that it would be better if Jesus died than for all of them to lose their place and lose their nation. You see, from their vantage point, if the people, if the people were huddling around him, the Romans might think there might be an uprising and come, and in their mind's eye, quash the nation, scattering and crushing and destroying them. They watched as thousands of people lined the way as Jesus entered into Jerusalem and their enthusiasm and their energy was contrary to what they wanted and they saw their world spinning away, forcing their hand to do something and they, out of frustration, began to blame one another. How do we respond when things don't go the way that we think they ought to? Find somebody to blame, become angry, finding mission to say it's your fault. That's what the Pharisees did. They didn't trust in God. They didn't look to the Lord. They blamed one another. But it was all a part of God's divine plan. And that is how it can be when things don't turn out how we would perhaps think it might be, that God has in his sovereignty a plan that is more wise than what we could ever think. Jesus knew that he was going to die and it was going to be at his time, not theirs. People had tried multiple times to kill him, but he wasn't going to succumb to their timetable because he had his own. And so Luke chapter 19, verse 39, tells us what the Pharisees said to Jesus. They said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. Don't tell them to hail you as king of Israel. Don't tell them to hail you and call upon you to save them. Rebuke them. That's not right, Jesus. All of these people. Maybe you should even tell them to go home. Jesus said, I tell you in verse 19, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Can't bottle up the truth. Jesus answered in effect, you can't do that. Even the stones will cry out what is true. Nothing can stop the sovereign plan of God. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It is Christ who builds his church and secondly, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Those in the crowd who were part of the Pharisees, they were angry, they were frustrated. Things weren't going their way. But then there comes a snippet, a few verses here that tells us about those that genuinely had questions about what was going on. Genuinely having questions, and they were the God-fearing Greeks. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Here were some Gentile converts, God-fearers, converts to Judaism. They were there for the feast. And inevitably, it was an interesting insertion here because they're not like the Jews. They're not like the Jews who wanted a revolution. They're not like the Jews who wanted a coup. They were not like the Pharisees who were angry about Jesus. They weren't. No, they were genuine people who had questions for Jesus. And here they see Philip. Philip from Bethsaida of Galilee. You know these Gentiles? These Gentiles also lived, and Philip likely would have spoken Greek, and they would have seen him, and perhaps they thought to themselves, he's, he, he, he's one of us. He's kind of like us. Let's ask him to ask Jesus. There's a certain kindred spirit. They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. You know, it's like somebody, if you were in, in, in some other country, the Congo or whatever, and you see somebody, somebody's from Seattle, you would just be drawn and say, what, you know what, where are you from? Where do you live, etc.?" And you'd know that they were somebody that you might be able to relate to. And so here they see Philip. Sir, we want to see Jesus. You know, Gentiles were welcome to worship God when Solomon built his temple. There was a court of the Gentiles, and so too was the t- temple here. There's a court of the Gentiles, but you could only go so close and so far into the temple to a limited extent because, you see, the Jews, the Jews, like many people, considered themselves to be far superior to the Gentiles, and there was great prejudice, great prejudice among the Jews. That is why you recall when Jonah was called to preach to Nineveh. When Jonah was called to preach to the Gentile city of Nineveh, he fled in the opposite direction, and he dealt with a lot of resentment in his own heart. Why? Because he knew God was a patient and long-suffering and gracious God, and for him to extend that to the enemies of Israel, there was great prejudice. 
Even in the book of Ephesians, when the church is explained, when they were established, he goes on, Paul goes on to tell about how the Gentiles are fully accepted into the church. Philip perhaps was in a little bit of a quandary. Here come these Gentiles who want to see Jesus, and so he doesn't quite know what to do. He goes to Andrew. Andrew and he, they went to Jesus. You can picture this little group of Gentiles. They come and are falling maybe at a little bit of an earshot distance away. whole setting is there perhaps because of a miss. All of these people, the angry Pharisees or the confused disciples or those that were there just for the excitement because they thought Jesus was going to be the military deliverer. Here were some who were genuinely interested and they had questions. They'd like to speak with Jesus. And oftentimes we can be encouraged and reminded that in whatever group we share our faith with, there will be those who will be genuinely interested in the Lord Jesus. God has people that he is drawing to himself And Jesus answers Philip and Andrew, perhaps in the earshot of these Greeks who are muscling their way through the crowd. This is what he says in verse 23. Answered and said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The time for the glorification of Jesus had come. But it wouldn't be through the fanfare of the people. It wouldn't be riding on the wave of popularity right at this moment. His glory would come by way of his suffering on the cross for sins. And he gives an agrarian analogy. If a grain of wheat sits in a silo, it's not going to grow. No, it'll simply sit there. It needs to fall into the soil, and the outside husk needs to rot and fall away, revealing on the inside the seed which will grow and bear much fruit. And so too, applied to Christ, he would need to die and provide salvation for many. And he turns to them, as he often spoke to those who would follow him, and he would share with them the cost of following him. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The word hate there is a Semitic expression meaning one who loves one thing more than another. Sometimes it's translated unloved like that of Jacob and how Leah was unloved. But literally hated here expresses the idea. And the question is, does one prefer Christ over one's family or possessions or goals or plans or desires, even one's own life. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. A very clear expression of the cost of following Jesus. The cost of being a disciple, the cost that it is, 
Luke 14, verse 26. <clears throat> For the text reads in Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Once again, the word hate means to prefer one over the other. If one does not love Christ more than his own family, the closest relationships, even themselves, they cannot be his disciples. Do you know what characterizes a true disciple? That of the affections of one's heart that shows itself in the fruit of one's life. Yes, there is the change in life, but it begins with a change in the heart, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, that he is a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come, and the affections of the heart changes to see things from a different vantage point. One of the misunderstandings in Luke 14 that one needs to carry his own cross or take up one's own cross, it doesn't refer to one's difficulties in life. One doesn't say, well, this passage refers to my micromanaging boss or it doesn't refer to my spouse or it doesn't refer to my physical ailment that I have a disability of. Jesus wasn't referring to any of these when he spoke to them. When the disciples heard Jesus say this, it's much more than the daily problems that we face. It is a call to self-sacrifice, the call to pay any price to be a disciple of Jesus, because the cross was a symbol, a symbol of shame, a symbol of embarrassment, a symbol of rejection, a symbol of persecution and even martyrdom. When Christ said this, it was a symbol of torture and of death. Not long before Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, a hundred men had been crucified in the area. A century earlier, 800 rebels had been crucified at Jerusalem. After the revolt, after the death of Herod the Great, 2,000 Jews were crucified by Rome. It was not an uncommon thing. In fact, it is estimated in the time and life of Jesus, some 30,000 people were crucified so when people heard Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to take up your cross daily, it was a call to self-sacrifice and a willingness to give up one's life for my sake. Like those who go out to the mission field, the question is not, oh, is it safe? The question is, what am I willing to sacrifice? Am I willing to give up my life? When I was a little boy as a junior higher, I still remember going to a series of meetings at church. They were having services, I think, every night that week. I remember sitting in the pew and the, and the pastor, who was in his 30s, was preaching powerfully the Word of God. And the Word of God touched my heart. And I remember that day. And I remember hearing the messages and how the Spirit of God convicted my sin. He was a dynamic preacher. He was a dynamic man of God. And God used him to touch many people's lives in our church. Then a few years later, I also remember the day when one of my youth leaders came and asked us to pray. 
Because that preacher, his name was Greg, was in his own home church in Los Angeles and he was preaching. And somebody who was a disgruntled parishioner had, whom he was trying to help was upset at the pastor. And he stood up in the middle of service and he pulled out a gun and he shot him and shot the deacon who was next to him. We were asked to pray. We were asked to pray that he would live. But God took him home. His wife compiled a number of things, a number of his sermons in a book. I think it was called Taking a Stand. The cost of taking a stand for Christ. You know, the children sing a song. The song goes, I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. I remember thinking to myself, it's a little boy. Someone, someone needs to take his place. Taking a stand. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Let me ask you, if you were in Jerusalem that day with the thousands of people, would you follow Jesus all the way to the cross? Or would you have been like the fickle crowd, the standoffish, I'd like to see Jesus from a distance. If he gives me what I want, then I'll follow him. Would you be like the angry Pharisees who would say, you know what, Jesus Jesus is just in the way of my plans. So inconvenient to do things for God because I'm so busy with my own life. Would you be like the disciples who just wouldn't know what to do? Would you be like the Gentile God-fearers who genuinely wanted to seek Christ? Would you be willing to follow Jesus all the way to the cross as he triumphantly enters And in genuineness say, save now, King of Israel. Save now. And say, though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the truth of your word. Lord, we give you thanks. Father, you know what is in our hearts, and we pray, O Father, that you would help us, help us in our weakness to surrender ourselves to you, that we would genuinely be able to say, I've decided to follow you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.